Hallelujah, what a Savior. In the meantime, we'll go to John chapter 16 this morning. We've almost made it to chapter 17. And that's quite a chapter. So who knows how long we'll be in that chapter. Reading a little bit for the context to set us up. I'll start in verse 16. A little while longer and you no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they were wishing, that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And our text for this morning. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. And Father, as we have direct access to you, I ask this morning that you would indeed empower me with the Holy Spirit of God to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just by way of introduction, I'd like to read this um, for us. This is from Richard Phillips' commentary, and I found it helpful. What kind of things should we ask for in prayer? One good answer was given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer. But the first request that Jesus taught us pertains to the glorifying of God's name. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is asking for God's name to receive the glory it deserves. Next is a request for God's work in the world. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After asking for God's glory and for the success of the gospel ministry, Jesus urged us to pray for our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. 
This is not praying for our wants, but for our needs. We should freely pray to the Father concerning our need of money or for food, shelter, and clothing, of friendship, of work, and of the Spirit's help in understanding the Bible and leading a godly life. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins, so Jesus tells us to ask God to forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Finally, Jesus would have us pray for God's spiritual protection and help in resisting sin and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. While the Lord's Prayer is a very helpful guide, Jesus wants us to know that through his atoning death, we have direct access to the Father for all matter of our needs. The story is told of a Union soldier with great personal need who went to the White House to see the president during the Civil War. The secretaries refused to interrupt the nation's chief executive to deal with a personal problem, so the soldier sat in a hallway and began to weep. Soon a little boy came down the hall, and upon seeing the soldier, he asked what the problem was. I need to see the president of the United States, the soldier explained, but I cannot get to him. At this explanation, the little boy took the soldier by the hand, walked him by the secretary's desk, past the armed guards, down another hallway, into the oval-shaped office where Abraham Lincoln was working. Lifting up his head, the president said, Oh, my son, what can I do for you? The soldier needs to speak with you, Daddy, came the reply. We might think ourselves to be like the soldier. For all of our great needs, we are but one small person, and the great God is busy running the universe. But Jesus tells us that through his ministry and in his name, we have access to God the Father. Not only does God the Father say to Jesus, my son, what can I do for you? So that Jesus tells our needs to to the heaven's thrones. More than that, God now says to the believer in Christ, my son, my daughter, open your heart and ask me for what you need. Put some perspective on things. As Jesus says here in our first verse, 23. In that day you will not question me about anything. Again, we are left wondering what that day is or those days. Usually this phrase points to the last day, to the great day. We see that in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Yet the primary time these things will take place that Jesus is referring to is after his resurrection. The disciples often had questions for Jesus. We saw this time and time again, asking him different things. And not at this point, they aren't asking him much. But in the upper room specifically, we remember in chapter 13, verse 6, Simon Peter said to him, when, uh, when Jesus was washing their feet, Lord, do you wish to wash my feet? In verse uh, 25, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, he said to him, Lord, who is it? You see, he, they asked questions. In verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why well, cannot follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And we know how, indeed, that went. And then in chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? 
They had these questions. They asked him things. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? So they had all these questions for him, and here they are now, and they're asking questions among themselves. And Jesus was there, and he had all the answers. When Jesus rose from the dead and then spent time with the disciples thereafter, they would have no reason to ask him for anything or ask him anything. They would have the knowledge that they needed. Then shortly afterward, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, all things would become solidified in the hearts and minds of the apostles. They would understand why Jesus had to die, how their grief was now turned into joy, and they would be happening in real time for them. Peter would have no need to ask, where are you going? How do we know the way? As Thomas would ask. All these things would have a lot of more meaning to them in a little while, as Jesus said. And then Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, I said to you, and I don't need to remind you again what that means. A profound weighty statement is coming. This commonly introduces a new train of thought. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Not only is the asking in Christ's name, but also the giving and receiving is in Christ's name as well. Leon Morris helps us out. He puts it this way. He says, a new state of affairs is about to be inaugurated. Until now, the disciples have asked Jesus for things directly or they have asked the Father directly. They have not asked the Father for anything in the name of the Son. Remember where they are in redemptive history. This is before the crucifixion, before the glorification of Christ, before the, the ascension of Christ, the resurrection. Not in that order, obviously. Jesus tells them to ask. The present tense may have its full significance. Keep on asking and assures them that they will receive. And the purpose of all of this is their joy. God is interested in the well-being and happiness of his people. They will go through trials, but when they put their trust in him, he puts a joy in their hearts that can never be removed. Notice that this is connected with prayer. They are to pray in order that their joy may be made complete. It cannot be made complete in any, any other way. So there's really four teachings on prayer in these verses, and then we have uh, some application for us. Four teachings on prayer, all beginning with the letter P. This is a practical thing for us to understand, but first and foremost, petition. Petition or asking. The scriptures before us, verse 23 through 27, we have the word ask. Depending on your translation, you may have the word question as well. We have this several times in here, to ask of God. Asking something of Jesus. Asking something of the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus treats these two askings as they are parallel. In other words, prayer to the Father was analogous in its nature to asking Jesus things, or asking Jesus of things from the disciples. In other words, Jesus Christ is God, and once again, we have that right here before us. 
Furthermore, simply stated, prayer is a conversation in which the disciples would talk to God. Prayer is also a conversation in which we talk to God, and we understand it's one way. We're not hearing back directly. All these questions the disciples asked, where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? How can I know the way? They were asking these things of God in the flesh. Simple questions, revealing their ignorance, asking of God, though. In many ways, shouldn't this be the same for us? Where, God, where do you want me to go? Why, God, why can't this be? Or why is this a reality? How, God? I don't see how this could happen, but you know, oh God. But how? Are we asking these questions of God as we plead before the throne of grace? Petitioning God, asking Him questions. Where? Why can't this be in my life, Lord? Why is this in my life? How, Lord? Can I see how this is or how this will turn out? Only you know, oh Lord. And in 1 John 5, I'll just read this for you. No need to turn there. Verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Remember the helpful tool for prayer, the acronym. Right? Acts, like the book of Acts. We all, most of us know this. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Right? Very simple, but sometimes we, we, our prayers are very simple at times, are they not? Tell me there's not a time in your life to where you just don't know what to pray. And, and this acronym helps us out. It's very simple but profound. Adoration, we're praising God, confessing, confession, confessing our sins before a holy God, and thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you even hear my prayers. And in supplication, God, this is why I'm approaching, because this is really what I'm struggling with, God. Help me with this. And we ought to freely ask things of this God who we serve. We have direct access to Him. We ought to lay it out before Him. In detail, even though he knows all things. Approaching God with a sincere heart, not with empty jargon. There's really no one to impress when you are on your face before God in your own home, laying on the carpet, is there? We're not with a bunch of people and saying, well, I'm going to pray this way and sound very important. This empty jargon. Approaching God with a sincere heart. Approaching God with reverence. Knowing who we are dealing with. Reverence is something this world has little knowledge of these days. I was out shoe shopping the other day. Buy one, get one half off. So, hey, it's always like that in there. And I go once in a while and I check and see. But, you know, you find one that's nice. And then you don't find a second pair. It's like you can't make the validation to buy one. So you got to have two pairs that are, maybe they do that deliberately. But ever, nevertheless, so I'm sitting, I'm in there looking around, and there's this kid in there. He's probably about 12 years old. This boy, maybe 12, and he's there with his mother, and he's whining. 
He is whining, but it's, it gets worse. He's asking, telling his mother to come over and counting. Like one, two, three, to his mom. And I said, oh, I just got to hear this. And so I went to, you know, I was listening. I was like, how's this going to turn out? And I had many things I wanted to say. Right? And she walked away and I went over there. No, I didn't do that. But I was dying. Because, I mean, think about just a whiny boy at 12 years old. That is just blood curdling to hear. I mean, it's almost as bad as Hillary's laugh, but not that far. Or some cackling that you may hear as a laugh. It's just not that far, but it's really just a, it should not be. It's irreverent, a whiny boy. It should not happen. I know when I was 12, I was a, what my dad would call whiny britches, he would say. But as I was sitting there, I wanted to give her some, some help that you should buy him a pair of shoes and introduce him to a new sport. It's called walking home. <laughs> but I didn't. But what's the point here? The point is the lack of reverence this boy had for his mother. Do I know the whole story? No. Do I know everything? about their situation, no, but I know irreverence towards a parent when I see it. And I know you can really see it there as I I saw this. Approaching God with reverence as people would approach royalty, an earthly king. How much more reverence and approach to God out of respect and awe of who he is and a fear of God, yet knowing we get to approach the throne of grace as his children, and we can just come before him and pray to him, yet we are to do so with reverence, with the absolute freedom to lay it out before him in detail, asking him, pleading with him to hear us according to his will. So there is the petition before God. Secondly, the privilege. Prayer is a privilege Verse 24 again, until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. This privilege of prayer, asking of God, communicating with God, the triune God, and you will receive and your joy may be made full. Jesus gave them patterns for prayer early on in the ministry, and we just... I read that in the introduction as well. As they get to know God more, especially after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, they will become more bold in their prayers. More bold in their prayer life. And that ought to be the case for us as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, just read it for you. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Not confidence in ourselves, confidence in who we know. Confidence that he hears our prayers. To the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Confident access to God on Christ, based on Christ's righteousness, not on a righteousness of our own. It's privilege to approach God 
and we receive mercy and find grace. The Reformation Study Bible says, Mercy addresses our need for forgiveness when we have succumbed to temptation, and grace brings timely support to sustain us in the midst of temptation. Again, Reformation Study Bible, very helpful tool to every Christian. Basic statement. The most profound thing you're going to hear this morning and all day long, we get to talk to God. That is a profound statement. We are able to talk to God. We are Christians. Those of us in here who are born again, we get to talk to God. God speaks to us in his word, through his word, and we we see uh, through his providence in our lives. God speaks to us verbally through his word, non-verbally through various providences in our lives. Ask and you will receive. This goes back to chapter 14. We understand this is not a genie in the bottle type of uh, formula. Ask and you will receive uh, this genie uh, perception. These are not prayers, by the way. This whole genie in a bottle thing, those are wishes, by the way. And if you really want to go down that road, you only have three of them. So it doesn't even make any sense. And they usually goes bad. It's like someone who plays the lottery who's foolish enough to do so, and then they, they win, and then they lose all their money within a year. They spend it all away because they didn't work for it. Ask and you will receive. Ask and it will be given to you. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Keep on asking in my name, he is saying. Keep on asking and you will receive. Now, the context is important like real estate, location, location, location. Context, context, context. Ask for what? Receive what? Well, asking according to God's will for God's glory on the basis of Christ's merits in his name. And you will receive for this purpose so that your joy may be fulfilled. Petition, privilege, and prerequisite or condition of effective prayer. Prerequisite. That's a word that still haunts me to this day. Nevertheless, the prerequisite. This is something in my name. It's a phrase that is repeated three times. What does it mean to approach the Father in the name of Christ? Is it merely a saying to tack on the end? To say, oh, we just prayed, oh, I forgot to say Jesus' name, we've got to start all over again. No, it's not just a a saying to tack on an end, Is is it more than that? Yes, it is to come to God as one who is in union with Jesus Christ, as a saved person, one who is born again, can pray to God the Father and say, yes, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're not a child of God, he does not hear your prayers. You could be in this church or any church since your youth and be offering up lip service to God your whole life for years and still die and go to hell. A scripture I referenced this morning in the Sunday school in the evangelism class was Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. I encourage you all uh, to please 
go there, especially those who did not hear this verse. This is a very important verse to consider. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. This really presses the point home. Because when we talk to people, and maybe we can get confused sometimes, especially those who are new in the faith, thinking that, well, they pray to God too. They're just, even though they're not Christians, and they're all, they're all set. That we know that's not the case, though. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But you, lost person in this building this morning, in this church today, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So there is a separation for the lost person from one side to the other. It's like trying to get to the other side of land, and there's a bridge there, and the bridge is no longer. How do you get over there? You can't. Or it's like trying to have a, remember the phone cords we used to have back in the day. The phone line, you'd have a, you'd have a conversation. The phone line's cut. You cannot communicate. How much more so can someone not communicate who is dead in their trespasses and sins to a holy God? Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. And it goes further in verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, guilty, 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 your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. So we see right here in this text this separation between a lost person and a holy God that can only be bridged together by the cross of Christ. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. You, one must go to the cross. Come to, coming to Jesus in obedience. Coming to Jesus. Casting your all upon him, believing upon him and turning from sin and trusting him in order to be able to communicate with God, to pray to God in order to have eternal life. Also, to pray in Christ's name is to pray on the basis of his merit and his righteousness, not a merit or righteousness of our own. Praying in Jesus' name. Also, this is praying for the will of Christ, for his will to be done, not our own. It is saying, God, your will to be done, not mine. Oftentimes, there's a contradiction between God's will and God, what God, what God is, says is, is going to happen or what God says is going to take place, what God says is best, and our own thinking. And we say, God, I want your will to be done, not my own. But align my will underneath your will, O Lord. Praying in Christ's name. How do we know his will? Well, first off, by knowing his word. And being led, secondly, by the Holy Spirit of God, who indwells the believer. But nothing can replace the careful study of the word of God and understanding what it says if we want to know the will of God. 
I'd encourage you to pray with an open book, the only book, the, the, the Scriptures, delighting yourselves in the Lord. And there are times when we just, we can't figure it out, right? We don't know the will of God, and we say, God, what is your will here? We're just asking these things, and we're saying, I'm obeying you in these things, Lord. But we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose, and we rest on that, do we not? And we know that part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to assist us in our prayers. We see that in Romans 8, and I'll just read that for us as well. Romans 8, 26 and 27. And the main theme of Romans 8 is, Romans chapter 8, is assurance for the Christian. That's the main theme of Romans chapter 8 when you study that. Paul's teaching here about prayer is linked back to verse 15 through 17. So if you read verse 26 and 27, you see that. But you go back to verse 15 through 17 of chapter 8, where Paul says, in verse 14, actually, of chapter 8, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a gift of adoption, excuse me, spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's the assurance we can have, brothers and sisters. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So then Paul goes on to expound upon suffering in the Christian life, which we have seen with Peter as well in our evening studies. But here in verse 26, after this uh, digression that he, Paul goes into with suffering, dealing with suffering in this life, we see here in the same way, verse 26, the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should. Uh, we've had that problem in here. Any of us not know how to pray as we should? Sounds like sometimes it's a daily thing. How do we pray as we should? But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this does not mean that we're sitting around groaning and moaning and saying that's the Spirit of God praying. That's not what this text is speaking about. Again, it goes back to verse 15 where we just were. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in a nutshell here, the point being, the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer as another way to assure us that we are God's children. Part of this, this prerequisite that leads into the promises of prayer. Promises of prayer. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. Main point of this verse here, God will give understanding to those who ask of him. There's not a shift here in verse 25 from prayer to his teaching. Instead, Whatever they may have misunderstood, Jesus will reveal to them and give them greater understanding when the Spirit of truth comes, whom Jesus will send. The promises of prayer. 
Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you, to you that I will request on the, on the, of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from the Father. Okay, so promises of prayer. Fuller knowledge and greater insight. The disciples would then pray as they should, as instructed in verse 23 through 24, in Christ's name. Leon Morris again. Asking in Jesus' name is not a way of enlisting his support. It is rather a pleading of his person and of his work for sinners. It is a praying on the basis of all that he is and has done for our salvation. These promises we have in prayer, our approach to God the Father is firm, resting on Christ's priestly work on our behalf. This passage, once again, insisting on the unity of the Father and the Son. Verse 27. This is the reason that Christ will not have to make a request on their behalf. God the Father does not need to be persuaded to be gracious to us. At the same time, he does not owe us anything. This verse does not mean that their love in some way, the disciples' love in some way merits the Father's love or that he loves them because they love Jesus Rather, and would bring us into the equation, we love God because he first loved us. We owe our all to Christ, do we not? All of our love to Christ. We can only love Christ because of a previous work of divine love from God. So why is all of this important? Why is prayer important? Why were the men outnumbered in the prayer room this morning by women? Why is that the case? The power of prayer. Why is prayer important? Some of us meet here midweek to pray. Some of us meet before service to pray. We pray corporately. We pray individually. Why? I'm going to give you numerous reasons. These are adapted from R.A. Torrey's little book entitled entitled How to Pray. I adjusted these, but it's a great little read not necessarily in order of importance. And we're done with these. Our brother will come and minister to us by way of communion. But don't pack up even soon because I have plenty of them. Why is prayer important? Think about that. Did you pray today before you got to church? Did you pray this morning? Did I pray? Or was it important? Well, several reasons. First, because there is a devil. Because there is a devil. And there are demons. And prayer is a God-appointing means for resisting him. James chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember what, how the world was described in John chapter 16 that we went over? How the world hates Jesus Christ and how the world hates Christians? 
And here James is saying, if you are friends with the world, that is hostility towards God. And if you are friends with the world, that makes yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit, who he has made to dwell within us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Think about that in prayer. We are drawing near to God, and he draws near to us. And we are cleansing our hands of of our sin. We are confessing our sins. Our hearts are purified. And when we approach the throne of grace, we are not double-minded. As we approach the throne, we are miserable and mourn and weep over our sins, and our laughter be turned into mourning, and our joy to gloom. But then he lifts up our countenance, does he not? So first, because there is a devil. Secondly, because prayer is God's way for us to obtain what we need from him. And we consider the Lord's prayer. And it shows our dependence upon him. It shows our absolutely, our absolute dependence upon God. It could be our dependence upon God for our needs. It could be a dependence upon God for being led by the Holy Spirit of God. If we are in ministry in any way, shape, or form, if there's no prayer, there is no power. Do not expect the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you are not praying for that in your life. Thirdly, because the apostles whom God sent forth to be a pattern for us considered prayer to be the most important business of their lives. Think about that. The most important business of their lives was prayer. It goes back to the second one, because they were completely dependent upon God. Fourthly, because prayer occupied a prominent place and played a very important part in the earthly life of our Lord. Think about that as well. We looked this morning, we have been looking at Jesus as the evangelist. Consider Jesus as a, the God-man in, in his humanity, a man of prayer. A man of prayer. Fifthly, because prayer is the m- most important part of the present ministry of our Lord since he is now interceding for us. Because prayer is a very important part of the present ministry of our Lord, since he is now interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Sixthly, because prayer is the means God has appointed for our receiving mercy from him and of obtaining grace to help in time of need. Seventh. Because prayer is the means of obtaining the fullness of God's joy. Eighth, because prayer with thanksgiving is the means of obtaining freedom from anxiety and in anxiety's place, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Verse 
Ever been anxious about something in prayer to our one true God has relieved that? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the first verse, uh, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why? The Lord is, is near. Ninth, because prayer is, an, is appointed for our obtaining the fullness of God's, uh, of the Holy Spirit. How so? Praying to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant here by number nine. Tenth, because prayer is the means by which we are to keep watchful and be alert at Christ's return. Remember a little while. Because prayer is used, 11, prayer is used by God to promote our spiritual growth, bring power into our work, lead others to faith in Christ, and bring all other blessings to Christ's church. It all, in many ways, begins with prayer. One thing we can be sure of when it comes to prayer is that God hears us, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. And the first most important prayer for anyone is a prayer of God to forgive them of their sins and to accept you as his child. This would be a prayer of genuine repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reconcile sinners through his atoning blood, forgive sinners, justifying them and adopting them into his family. This is only for those who who confess their sin and forsake their sin. If you refuse Jesus now, If you reject him, you are remaining under God's wrath and under his condemnation. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, I believe it is, repent and believe the gospel. Do so today if you do not know Christ. For prayer, there is petition, there is privilege, there are prereqs, there are the promises, and then we found the power of prayer. 11 ways. Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning is that you have shown us our need of you once again, our desperate need of you every moment of every day. Thank you for the assurance that you give to your people that you hear us, that you love us, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that our hearts would be prepared this morning for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.